0: If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, it's on page 1179 in the Church Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death,
1: The sermon is summed up for us in the reading that Rob gave, and we will confine ourselves exclusively and entirely in that uh, passage, uh, Philippians chapter 2, and just make one reference in chapter 4. And that's where we're going tonight, and um, our title, this is part of a a series of sermons that we're pursuing, we've already looked at priorities Uh, In a nameless world, and we thought about our involvement, not only involvement in church, but in in society, being salt and light. Then we thought about uh, priorities in a nameless world, what it is to be a person of integrity and leisure. You looked at last Sunday, and now we've got this word, attitude. Attitude, and that's where we are heading this evening. And an obvious reference. Uh, If it can be summed up in one verse and one sentence, then there you have it in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 where Paul seems to take a deep breath and before quoting this uh, hymn, which might be sometimes referred to as a didactic hymn uh, of the early church, he says now, your attitude. Let's do something about that. It should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's the sermon. If for nothing else, that is a mighty statement and a challenge for all of us who confess the name of Jesus Christ. One of the things that I've often done with couples, particularly as part of what we call marriage preparation, is try to say this one thing. Of course, it's not limited uh, in any sense to Um, Marriage, it's, it's integral to all relationships, and it's this. Your attitude is either your best friend or your worst enemy. In human relationships, our attitude is either our best friend or our worst enemy. Either to attract people, to be attractive, or to repulse people, to be repulsive. To draw people or to scatter people. And attitudes, even unintentionally, unconsciously, are a part of what it is to be human. Someone has said, life is 10% what happens to us, and 90% how we react to what happens to us. Okay, let's be fair then, it's random, 10% of the things that happen are outside of our control. The 90% are within our control. And that's a very powerful challenge when we think of what it is to live out our Christian lives in a fallen world. So there it is. Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Uh, I've been asked to speak at a a minister's meeting under the heading, How to Stay Fresh in Pastoral Ministry. And the challenge is, for one pastor talking to fellow pastors, and it's this, how do you? It's it's all very well starting a ministry. That actually is relatively easy. How do you continue? How do you sustain? And how do you maintain fruitfulness in your personal life, your private life, and in the whole life of being uh, a pastor? And um, some of what's in the sermon is actually part of some of the things that I think would be helpful to share with fellow pastors. And it's not in any sense going to be above our heads. It's, it's what it is to do that. Um, so I want to quote from my, I know it's a bit sad from my direct. This is my friend and companion. Apart from going to bed, I take this with me everywhere. And it's called the Parsons Pocketbook. And uh, I've got Twenty of them now. It's uh, it's a diary and I'm eternally indebted to the Church of England for producing this. It does cost £14 for a diary. You wouldn't pay that for a diary, I don't suppose. But anyway, I do and, and I think it's good value. When I get my diary, each year I write things on the same page. The first thing that I write is this. This is a new year. I want to see unbelieving people become committed followers of Jesus Christ. Everything that I want to do is focused on that. And I want to remind myself, this is not me preaching a sermon, no, this is for me. Then the second thing that I write down is, is from a quotation from a book by Viktor Frankl. The book is called Man's Search for Meaning. I bought six copies of these and I was trying to bring it tonight a quote from it and I've given them all away. Um, and... Uh, it's summarised like this.
0: Choose
1: one's attitude. The ultimate freedom. The ultimate freedom. And then as I go down the opening page in the diary, in order for me to survive, I use St. Augustine's dictum, at least it's attributed to him, that in essentials we need unity, In non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. In other words, as the year begins, you have to make a decision. Are you going to fight on all fronts, or are you going to prioritise what are the important things and the lesser things, so that you don't dissipate your energy? And then, whatever the verse for the year is, that's put underneath, and I would try to use that on a regular basis. That, I think, is quite a good introduction to the sermon in terms of attitude. So let me quote to you from uh, Victor Frankl, who survived Auschwitz and wrote only one book, which was entitled Man's Search for Meaning. I'm sure he could have written dozens, but as a man of great integrity, he said, all that I want to say is in one book. gripped naked, falsely accused, humiliated beneath the glare of the lights of the stair of the Gestapo. Victor Frankl stood <coughs> shaved and shivering in a Nazi courtroom. His shorn head was a symbol of his shorn life. They'd stolen his home, his freedom, his possessions, and though he didn't know it then, they had killed all his family. Yet, as Frankel faced the men who had robbed him of everything and left him with only the years of indignity, he realized and he made a decision that there was one thing they could never take away. And that, of course, was his dictum for life and death. Choose one's attitude, the ultimate freedom. Now, if you know anything about the horror of the context in which he survived and subsequently wrote a book, you would know that he could choose despair or hope, what little hope there was in Auschwitz, bitterness or forgiveness. He could choose to wallow in self-pity and he had enough to wallow in for sure or to endure. The quality of his outer life was beaten into submission but his inner life was to rule. To choose one's attitude is the ultimate freedom. And I think the great apostle Paul is saying exactly the same thing in verse 5. As if he says to this church that he loved very much, he says, now, come on, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I think you'll realize that's a very powerful thing to challenge, to be challenged with. Come back to Augustine for a moment when asked to list the central uh, truths and principles of the Christian life as, as the leader that he was um, what was this list he said first humility second humility third humility he was making a choice and you find that crystallized in verse 5 your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus and then verses 6 to 11 it's just spelled out and, and you can see that for yourself. Uh, I wasn't quite sure of this word attitude. What, sort of, what bells does it ring? What signals does it give you? Just when you think of the word attitude. Well, uh, I looked at uh, the, the dictionary and it said this. The way you regard things. How do you, how do you see things? The way you regard things. And then... Uh, your reaction to people or your reaction to situations. And interestingly, they also, it's not, it's, it's, it's not uh, descriptive, it's just giving a definition, and yet it says body language. Body language. And often our attitude, we send signals to people on all of these areas, good or ill. How you regard things, how you react to situations. You know, the old statement, two men behind prison bars. One saw mud, the other saw stars. What do you see? What do you see? Or, convince a man against his will, with an attitude, he's of the same opinion still. Are we governed by our prejudices, or are we open to unchanging principles? So let's come to the church at Philippi. Uh, It was, for the most part, you could almost say a model church, the sort of church you'd want to belong to. For the most part. It wasn't perfect. There there is no such thing. We know that. But it it, it prevails with a sense of joy and openness and love and thanksgiving. It was healthy and, for the most part, harmonious. But some people... had a a critical spirit and and a negative attitude. And people were being knocked off course. So what Paul does into that context, he, he gives the importance of attitude. And this is very interesting. And I hope that you'll follow me with this. Thinking of the transforming of attitudes which then have an impact on actions. Attitudes first, actions separate, because they determine the outcome. So let's come to the the passage itself with that sort of um, preamble, and I think you'll agree that at least some of those things do uh, resonate with us. Look at um, verse 1 of of chapter 2. And you come immediately... I don't know if you've noticed this before. I'm sure if if you have, you'll just have to bear with me in stating the obvious. But Paul gives four ifs. Do you see it? The theme is humility. He comes to the attitude. It is illustrated. But before that, he says, look, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Stop there. Four ifs. The first, the if of being united to Christ. Think of what a blessing that is, to be one with him. Or Paul's favourite phrase that he used, being in Christ, secure in him knowing that in this life and beyond this life that he has a purpose for us. And then look at the second if. Comfort from his love. He's really talking here about the love of Jesus that should permeate their relationships. Christ's love that compels us. And drives us on, and is the force in terms of continuing in the Christian faith and being part of his disciples. And then the third is the fellowship of the Spirit. What it really means to be filled with the Spirit. And then the fourth, if and uh, we don't need to dwell too much on these, you can you can look it up for yourself. This. This is something that we all need. It's not just the milk of human kindness. It's more than that. Tenderness and compassion. And it's a reference to our supreme role model in the Lord Jesus, who was gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord Jesus who doesn't break the, the bruised reed or it or extinguish the smouldering wick. But he's encouraging and nurturing. Well, those are the the ifs. But this is the point. As you, as you see, verse 1, Paul's ifs are then followed by Paul's thens. I may not make very good grammar, but I think you, you'll see what I mean. Look at verse 2. Just to see, to try to flesh out this business of attitude and leading up to it. If you have these four, then something is going to happen. Then. And you know, now you get down to the practicalities. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and purpose. Do you see the point where these things are and if these do exist then certain implications are inevitable and the implications are spelt out for us and this this is counter to our natural nature being willing to put others first in the way that we serve the Lord Jesus, so number one and this is very interesting because it's all to do with our interpersonal relationship. The very thing that the world craves for is the thing here that this is the implication. First, joy of others. What a surprise that is. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. He's, It's being exhorted to be of one mind, one love, one spirit, one purpose. It isn't just saying, oh well let's all uh, believe everything and keep everybody happy. Think for a moment, which is more important? My self-indulgence, my ego? Or is it the blessing and the good of others? the joy of seeing you and I living mature Christian lives as we relate to each other. That's what Paul's after. That's what he's looking for. Sometimes I come across what is almost a super spirituality in this sort of superior fashion where someone says, well, of course, my only concern is to give joy to Christ. I'm not interested in people. Well, that's a a contradiction of this. Or you'll find some people say, my main concern is that I'm right in my doctrine and what I believe and I don't care what you think. Well, that's a distorted view of this. If these things are in place, with all the diversity of personality and background, look, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Look at the second of implication. Unity with others. What a surprise. I, I wonder if you're almost disappointed. Unity with others. Like minded, having the same love, one in spirit and purpose. Now this appeal is particularly interesting in Philippians, where obviously there were tensions. Uh, just just look flick over a page just for a moment in Philippians 4 and verse 2 and uh, it's this appeal now to what he's been saying. I I think it's a challenge of attitude in interpersonal relationships. I plead with I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. And yes, you men don't just stand by. Yes, I ask you, loyal York fellows, help these women who've contended at my side in the gospel and so on and so forth. You see, he just doesn't say things, he makes reference to it and then he looks for a personal application of it. It isn't just words. It's thing that heals relationships and restores relationships and enriches them. When you only have a superficial relationship, then you get division ultimately. And often a lack of true humility. And the last one, the value of others. What a surprise these are. The joy of others, unity with others, though we are different, and recognize our differences, and the value of others. And, and as, as you come, come back to Philippians 2, uh, look, look then at verses 3 and 4. How does it work, you say? Just tell me, okay? Here it is. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only on your own interests, though that's legitimate, but not exclusively, also on the interests of others. I'm very surprised at that. Are you? That, That the test of this is actually... My attitude is tested by the way I relate to other people or the way I'm actually dismissive of other people and treat them with indifference. It is our best friend or our worst enemy. It is the one that will either heal relationships or break them. You see what he's saying? If these things are true, then these are the implications that will follow. Essentially then, Paul is saying here, if you want these things, then you've got to do just one thing. And you've got to be prepared to face it now. If you're going to see these things, it is this. Pure and simple. You need to change your attitude. I hope you're not offended by that. Well, that's what he's saying here, isn't it? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And in areas where it isn't, then you've got to to step into line and you've got to change. Change the way you think, the way you relate, the way you see things. You can't do that in and of yourself. I'm not saying this is just self-suggestion. What I am saying is that Christ is in you and he says, now let's work at this together. So let's try to give three very quick um, headings as we, uh, as, as we apply this. The first is this, if, if that's the case, and if verse 5 is glaring in our face and highlighted in our, in our Bibles, then we need an attitude of unselfish, unselfish humility. Okay, verse 5, we, we, we've read that a few times, so we needn't say it again, but then what does verse 6 say? Who thinking about Jesus being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and so on there is something I think almost unconsciously attractive about true humility of course there is something terribly repulsive about a humility that is pretentious. When my attitude will change, my action will change. When my attitude change, my relationships will change. That's what he's saying. But think for a moment, when circumstances overwhelm us, you might be thinking, you know, it's all right for him staying there, but if he had to face what I have, if you've got... The, 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 the prediction of, of a, a, an incurable disease or a failed marriage or pending bankruptcy or trouble at home, then maybe you would think differently. Well, maybe I would, but I still think what I'm saying is right. When circumstances overwhelm us, we make a choice. We make a choice, albeit even unconsciously, to focus on God or to focus on our problems. When we look at the problems, we generally drift either into blame or self-pity. And often a sort of aggressive response to trouble is wanting to blame someone. Our whole society is like this, isn't it? We've demonized the bankers. We're cynical about our politicians. That's how it is. That's the atmosphere in which we live. Somebody's to blame, and for sure it's not me, for the most part. But let's just stay with that for a moment. Just let me, let's follow it through. If, first of all, if we blame ourselves, for example, we tend to bind ourselves to the past. And we undermine our self-esteem. Okay, that's a zero option. Let's blame someone else then. Somebody is to blame. And when we blame someone else, we, we alienate ourselves. Often we're in danger of poisoning our relationships with that person or future relationships. Well, okay, let's blame God. We blame God. He's in control after all. And when we do that, we shut ourselves off from the single most potent source of grace and help. Let me me quote you from um, a psychologist who says this, putting it in stark black and white terms. What do you make of this? Only one kind of counselee is relatively hopeless. The person receiving counsel, only one is hopeless. And that is the person who blames other people for his or her problems. However, if you can own the mess you're in, there is hope. Hope for you And help for the future. As long as you blame others. You will be a victim. For the rest of your life. Fancy going through life. Saying I've been a victim. I've been victimized. Poor me. I would say to you that is a very unhelpful. And unhealthy attitude. For a Christian. And so the alternative is an attitude of unselfish, or we should almost say healthy humility, being like Jesus. Secondly, and moving on, uh, an attitude of positive encouragement. An attitude of positive encouragement. Look at verse 14. Just this sentence is enough. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Anna might remind me of that when we get home. Be nice. Do an attitude of positive encouragement. One thing that is true of all generations, children particularly, is this. They need masses of encouragement. I was uh, quite surprised that the, the Greek word for complaining or whinging is It Sounds horrible, doesn't it? It's like, I think it could be a character and monster stinklight. I, I haven't, you know, it's those things that, not very good, not very good. That's the Greek word for complaining. It even resonates in, in English language, doesn't it? I think you will hear this word tomorrow. I would predict that you will. You'll hear it sometimes, sadly, in church and in family. And it can dominate your life. And there are plenty of people who express it. But if you do, then you are going to be discouraged. You're going to be depressed. And you're going to be disappointed both with yourself and with other people. And I say to you, that's a zero option. So the alternative is an attitude of positive encouragement. Work at it, living out our life without constant complaining. And lastly... And Paul is so good at this, I think about 13 times or so, the, the word joy or rejoicing or much more than that is found in this very short letter. It, it, it resonates with this theme of joy and so an attitude of genuine joy. And this is the context, of course, for our verse for the year. And, and have a look at it again. Uh, Philippians 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. So that's, if, if, if you like, verse 14 is the negative Chapter 2, verse 14, uh, do everything without complaining. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 4 is the positive. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. It's not vain repetition. It needs to get into us, doesn't it? Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. And that's our verse for the year. And hopefully soon we'll have the unfolding of our banner. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. An attitude of genuine joy. And so to close, six ways to maintain a Christ-like attitude. I leave them with you. I'm not going to comment much on them because they're rather obvious. But that's, this, is, this is the conclusion and the, the application. Six ways to maintain a Christ-like attitude. And they summarized for us in verse 8. One of, this is Paul's last, his last, last, finally. Chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters. And here they are. These six ways to maintain a Christ-like attitude. Now, I think I've said that three times deliberately. Perhaps just once more. Six ways to maintain a Christ-like attitude. And there it's crystallized for us. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. For sure, tomorrow, or God forbid, even as soon as the benediction is announced, you come across something that's the complete opposite all the time, dogging our lives, blighting our relationships, that which is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Let these things dominate our lives. And whatever our circumstances, though God forbid that it should ever be, as Victor Frankl found himself in an Auschwitz concentration camp, choose attitude. It's the ultimate freedom. The ultimate freedom. And in a Christian context, your attitude should be, well, let it be, the same, the very same. As Jesus Christ. Now that is a very wonderful. Wonderful objective. It may be that you don't know this Jesus Christ. Well allow him into your heart and life. And let these things permeate. And his grace to liberate. And the joy of being forgiven and reconciled to him. Unto each other. But be sure of this, our attitude is either our best friend or our worst enemy. And if our attitude is impacted by the power of the Spirit, shaped by the grace of Jesus, then we can surely go out into this world and live out our life with purpose and destiny. So before the hymn is sung, there's that little sentence, isn't there? Your attitude should be the same. Let it be. Let it be.